A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Ancestry.com.au. You've seen the faded sepia photograph, but how tall was your great-grandfather? How much did he weigh? What colour were his eyes? And did he really have a mermaid tattoo? These are the sort of details that can turn a family tree into a colourful and compelling personal history. And they're the sort of details you can sometimes discover in military and or police records at Ancestry.com.au. I use Ancestry constantly to research and write this podcast, and it could help you piece your past together too. For more information, go to Ancestry.com.au because there could be more to your story. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. Just before we start, I'm pleased to announce that regular Forgotten Australia book club episodes will be a thing from now on. It'll work this way. I'll nominate a book that we can all read, and then a few weeks down the track, I'll interview the author, including questions that you submit in writing or in an audio clip. First book off the shelf is Suburban Noir by Peter Doyle, released in October last year by New South Publishing. Suburban Noir is a cracking portrait of crime and punishment in Sydney in the 1950s and 1960s. Peter Doyle's book also has a really personal touch because it's largely based on police files left behind by his late uncle, Detective Sergeant Brian Doyle, who was one of the top cops of that period. Cases he worked on include the Kingsgrove Slasher and the Graham Thorne Kidnapping. With your input, Peter and I will be discussing Suburban Noir, but we'll also talk about his other books. These are Crooks Like Us and City of Shadows, the incredible collection of Sydney mugshots and crime scene photos he curated for the New South Wales Justice and Police Museum. Then there's Peter's quartet of period crime novels featuring anti-hero Billy Glasheen. These are The Devil's Jump, Amaze Your Friends, Get Rich Quick and The Big Whatever. Suburban Noir is available in all good bookshops and libraries and you can also get it as a Kindle e-book. The Billy Glasheen novels are also available in electronic format. City of Shadows and Crooks Like Us are available new and second-hand at various online retailers, and you'll also find those in libraries. So there's plenty to talk about, and I look forward to getting your questions. Have them in by the 27th of April. If you'd like me to read your question to Peter Doyle, send it as an email to ForgottenAustraliaPodcast at gmail.com. But if you'd like to record your question directly from your computer as an audio file, go to SpeakPipe, that is S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E, speakpipe.com forward slash Forgotten Australia. It's free and it's super easy to use. Lastly, the brand new Forgotten Australia bonus episode called Gotcha! Australia's April Fools is available now for Apple subscribers and Patreon supporters. I had a ton of fun going through two centuries of our history to uncover dozens of jokes, pranks and hoaxes. 
In the episode, we'll not only dial up the fish of the day, dine on rhino steaks, and freshen our drinks with ice from an iceberg, but we'll also wage fake wars and investigate homicidal hoaxes. That is, when we're not escaping past the disasters or saving our butts from those dreaded kamikaze eels that live in the sewers. So what's the greatest Australian April Fool's Day joke ever? Find out with the Apple and Patreon links in your show notes. And if you use Apple to listen to this podcast, you can take advantage of the three-day free trial to hear the episode and all the other bonus episodes without paying anything. Just cancel before it expires. Finally, finally, a big shout-out to recent Patreon supporter, Jade Mustard. Alright, on with the show. It's about 8 o'clock on the spring evening of Wednesday the 21st of October 1885 and the Salvation Army is marching along Margaret Street in the Melbourne suburb of Richmond. These sorts of processions, men and women in black and red uniforms, singing and sermonising, playing trumpets and drums beneath their fire and blood banners, trailed by crowds of people from the lower classes, have become commonplace all over Australia in the past few years. To some, the Salvation Army are a welcome presence, spreading the good word, ministering to the wretched and converting souls for Jesus. To others, they're a noisy annoyance, minding other people's business, disturbing the peace and clogging up the streets. But to a specific breed of larrikin, the Salvation Army isn't a welcome presence or a noisy irritation. To these thugs, the Salvation Army is the enemy. The enemy of fun, the enemy of their way of life. Larrikins of this stripe are out in force in Richmond tonight. Like the Salvos, they're easy to spot. They brandish noisemakers, cornets, drums, whatever causes a racket, and they sing and scream parodies of solemn hymns. These larrikins wear black overcoats, and they march under their own flag. Their banner, like the cards in the red bands they wear in their hats, is emblazoned with the skull and crossbones, and their name, the Skeleton Army. The skeleton's mission? Throw everything they've got at the salvos, be it filthy insults, rotten eggs, heavy bricks or closed fists. Now, in Richmond, hell is on the heels of the holy, the skeletons shadowing the salvos down the street. They raise hoarse voices to hurl curses and chant blasphemies. Next come the missiles. The larrikins fling mud to spatter clothes and they throw stones in the hope of cracking heads. The skeletons know the Salvationists are an easy target. The police don't protect them, and they often won't defend themselves. But tonight, all that's about to change. This time, the Salvation Army's members, those men and women who call themselves the Soldiers of the Cross, aren't simply going to turn the other cheek. The skeletons are too close and they're too threatening. The Salvationists turn around to stand their ground and defend themselves. But as the fists fly, as the battle is joined, the soldiers of the cross know they have a secret weapon in store. A secret weapon that might help end the war on the Salvation Army that's been waged for years now by the thugs of the Skeleton Army. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. These days the Salvation Army is one of the most respected and trusted charities in Australia as it is all over the world. Thank God for the salvos, 
That's the catch cry. And just about everyone, even non-believers, has a soft spot for the organisation. It always struck me that in a pub on a Friday night, rowdy arguments would be set aside for a moment as myself and every other drunken fool in the place reached into our pockets when a Salvation Army officer appeared with his or her collection tin. But it wasn't always like this. Even before the Salvos started in Australia, they were viewed with suspicion. This was thanks to the local press reprinting alarmist articles about the evangelical movement that had appeared in English newspapers. And during the years the Salvation Army was trying to establish a foothold in Australia, they copped it from all sides. The pulpit, the politicians, the press and the public. But the Skeleton Army gave them the very worst treatment. What's more, it's likely that these larrikins weren't acting spontaneously. They were reportedly organised and funded by the owners of boozers, breweries and brothels. These men didn't want their businesses to suffer, so they sent in their skeleton army goon squads to do the dirty work. Such attacks were common in South Australia, New South Wales and Queensland, in both cities and country towns. But they were most prevalent in Victoria, and especially in Melbourne. While all of this took place 140 years ago, unfortunately, the dark spirit that animates such violence isn't a thing of the past, as has been made all too clear on our streets just recently. Hopefully, sanity, tolerance, compassion and conversation, rather than irrationality, anger and violence, can spare us the sort of scenes that plagued Australia for years in the 1880s. The organisation that became the Salvation Army was established in England in 1865 by Methodist preacher William Booth and his wife Catherine. Their small evangelical group was first known as the Christian Revival Society. It was soon renamed the Christian Mission and then the East London Christian Mission. Under any name, the Booths and their followers weren't about preaching to the converted. For want of a better expression, they were about preaching to the perverted. People whose pathway to heaven had been perverted, they believed, by ignorance, by alcohol and all the other sufferings of society's down-and-outers. As well as preaching redemption, the East London Christian Mission offered soup kitchens, basic education, reading rooms and other forms of relief. From the first, the Booths and their followers met with resistance from the very people they were trying to help and they were regularly pelted with firecrackers, eggs and stones. In mid-1878, the East London Christian Mission changed its name to the Salvation Army. Its members adopted military-style ranks and wore military-style uniforms. Reverend William Booth was now to be known as General William Booth. Below him, full-time ordained ministers took the ranks of Major, Captain and so on, while part-time volunteers were the foot soldiers. It made sense. The Salvation Army saw itself as being at war with Satan, and the spoils of victory were nothing less than the souls of all mankind. For nearly 15 years, Australia's newspapers hadn't been at all interested in the doings of the East London Christian Mission. But from mid-1879, with the advent of the new name, the Salvation Army, along with its new militaristic narrative, colonial editors started to reprint, summarise and comment on articles from the English newspapers. These stories first centred on the rough coal mining district of the Rhondda Valley in Wales. 
brave Salvation Army women had gone in there preaching. These hallelujah lasses, as they were called, held processions through the streets to lead people to their revival meetings. Initially, the ladies were shunned, but soon their boisterous all-night gatherings were attended by hundreds of the singing, praying and testifying faithful. Within three months, it was reported they had made 1,000 converts. Salvation Army General Booth had visited and huge congregations had packed and surrounded halls and chapels. Australian newspapers were in two minds about this Christian revivalism. Was the Salvation Army doing God's work exactly as instructed in the Gospels, where Christ told the Apostles to preach on the highways and byways? Or was the Salvation Army bringing the Christian religion into disrepute with its boisterous behaviour that attracted vast crowds of exactly the wrong sort of people? South Australia's Christian colonist newspaper printed a report saying the Salvation Army's tactics were the only way to reach people who were mired in drink and degradation. These unfortunates would otherwise never step foot in a place of worship. What the Christian colonists feared was that other newspapers would print biased reports that exaggerated the enthusiasms of evangelical marches and services and that this would cause revulsion in readers and stir opposition to the Salvation Army. The Christian colonists was spot on and most advanced reporting in Australian newspapers would fit this category. As those reprinted English reports made abundantly clear, the Salvation Army was weird. They were noisy, colourful, out there, completely at odds with conservative Christianity and attracting vast crowds of drunks, harlots and other sinners. Sydney's The Protestant Standard newspaper criticised their antics. It took particular exception to the use of military titles, particularly members who claimed further honours such as Daredevil or Black Prince because they said they'd distinguish themselves in literal battles with His Satanic Majesty. The Protestant Standard supported its case by reprinting two English Salvation Army handbills. One used a railway motif to offer converts a seat on what might be their last train. Book now, it urged, for quote, one of the shortest, quickest, and best routes from the depths of crime. If you were a sinner, you could get yourself a first-class ticket to heaven, courtesy of the Hallelujah Railway porters, who'd guide the trip to the glory land for all anxious souls. In other words, come to a service and be saved. The other handbill reprinted by the Protestant Standard announced a Salvation Temple service under the command of Captain Booth with his Hallelujah Fiddle. Attendees could expect to see Happy Bill and Glory Tom, both from Sheffield, Shaker Bill from Blackburn, the famous band of Hallelujah Lasses, as well as a champion pigeon flyer and a champion wrestler. These Salvation Army celebrities would all be singing and playing music for God and telling the congregation how they'd been saved. The Protestant Standard writer argued, quote, if Charles Dickens had treated his readers to anything like these two handbills, the whole religious press of England would have turned on him for publishing profane caricature. Surely, here is enough to convince anybody that revivalism in England has gone mad. In September 1879, the Herald in Melbourne reprinted a report from the English paper Danbury News about a salvation service in a big Welsh chapel that was attended by a couple of thousand people. It had been presided over by 
General William Booth, and popular penitents like Happy Jack and Happy Tom had appeared and screamed unpleasantly as they sang and writhed and testified. Quote, For nearly an hour, there was an indescribable scene. The general seemed to lose all control over the meeting. Yet even this alarmist article admitted the Salvation Army did have a positive impact. Quote, It is only right to say that while the movement lasts, there is much less drunkenness in the neighbourhood than there was before. The cases at the police courts are decreasing rapidly, while men who were formerly bad specimens of the Welsh minor, drunkards, careless fathers, neglectful husbands, are reformed. In August 1880, an Adelaide audience had the relatively rare opportunity to hear from a speaker who'd personally seen the Salvation Army in action in England. The experiences of this eyewitness, who was the secretary of the Melbourne YMCA, roughly encapsulated what the Australian reaction would be over the next five years. First, rejection. Then, respect. Finally, reverence. The Adelaide Express and Telegraph newspaper paraphrased this man, quote, Although he had been brought into contact with many peculiar kinds of Christian work, never before had he seen anything like this, and at first he was inclined to quarrel with it, but afterwards he had to admit that he had made a great mistake. When he heard the Hallelujah Lasses singing, and the blood-washed collier preaching God's love to man amid a persecution that none but earnest whole-souled Christians could have borne so patiently, he had to admit they were doing a good work that none but such men and women were competent to do. He saw them carrying on their work amid a rain of snowballs that cut their faces until they bled, and yet never did they once complain. They did not even mention it, and their silent Christian endurance forced him to respect them. He believed now that the Salvation Army was raised by God to do a particular work. So the Salvation Army scene was set, arguments made for and against, the likelihood of persecution and violence raised before they even appeared in the Australian colonies. As early as April 1880 in Melbourne, a Reverend Shane had adopted the Salvation Army approach. On Sunday nights, his followers would try to get people into his service at the Gospel Hall, which was located off Burke Street, or, as the Herald put it, quote, in one of those detestable side slums which do so much to disfigure the otherwise well-laid-out city. On the night that the paper's journalist attended the hall, there were 40 or 50 in the congregation, among them many drunks and locally infamous crooks. Reverend Shane's sermon was about the Salvation Army, saying there was a great need for the organisation in Melbourne. Four months later, in the first week of August, a Mrs. M.K. Innes used the age classifieds to advertise Sunday afternoon Salvation Army gospel sermons in the centre of the city. Mrs. Innes was a temperance advocate who decided Melbourne couldn't wait for emissaries to arrive from England. A similar situation was arising in South Australia. What's regarded as Australia's first official Salvation Army meeting was held in Adelaide's Botanic Gardens on the afternoon of Sunday the 5th of September 1880. Edward Saunders and John Gore, two army members who'd recently emigrated from England, spoke to the curious from the back of a cart. At seven o'clock that night, they gathered in Light Square and started singing in a procession to the League Hall in Hindley Street. 
In a report they furnished to the Christian Colonist newspaper, these pioneers said, quote, In a few minutes the hall was full, and many were standing. From the first, they employed the language of militarism, quote, A hymn having been sung, two brethren engaged in prayer, and then commenced to fire at the people, one after another, until the power of Christ was felt. Shots fell in all parts. Many were wounded. And from the get-go, they wanted to recruit more soldiers of the cross. Quote, the Salvation Army means work. Workers are wanted. Men and women of God, anxious to devote themselves to the work of saving souls, who can talk to a crowd of people out of doors or in, so as to wound sinners' hearts, who are ready to speak, pray, visit, sit still, travel a hundred miles, or die at any moment. Come and join the army, the army of the Lord, and stand like the brave, with your face to the foe. And it's clear that, right from its official beginning in Australia, the Salvation Army had foes. While it didn't specify the details, the Christian colonists reported that police protection was needed by the army in its second Adelaide outing the next Sunday. Nevertheless, in the weeks that followed, the crowds grew and the army claimed victories. An update from Edward Saunders said they, quote, "...continued to wage war against the enemy in and around Adelaide, and I am glad to report that since my last letter we have, by God's help, taken 12 more prisoners from the ranks of the enemy." Our aim is to reach the masses who never go to any place of worship. Meanwhile, Messrs Saunders and Gore had written to General Booth in England to ask that he send senior officers urgently to Adelaide. Over in Melbourne, Mrs Innes and her followers had been conducting services in the name of the Salvation Army in the Mission Hall in Collingwood. They'd also been preaching on the wharves. And that was tolerable, according to the Herald. Problem was, these well-intentioned, homegrown evangelicals were just taking it too far. Why, just yesterday, a Sunday, they'd been singing and strident sermonizing as they perambulated the streets. Quote, It is time that the police came to the rescue in order to preserve the true sanctity of the Sabbath, which is, after all, peace and the liberty to enjoy it as one thinks best. The Herald said the Salvation Army's preachers employed the vilest of English, that was, the common tongue of the lower class, and even worse, they did so in the most awful nasal intonations, and were making Sunday simply hideous to decent people. The paper said they'd be better off just sticking to churches, and if they really did have to seek out the poor, then better they do it door to door. In 1880, the Salvation Army was just getting started in Australia. But the rise of another group had been all over the headlines for the past decade. They were the Larrikins. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. While the word larrikin these days denotes a lovable knock-around Aussie, back in the 1880s it described young men and women who were the worst examples of humanity and a menace to civilised Christian society. In Victoria, larrikins were largely the native-born sons and daughters of the men and women who'd poured into the colony during the gold rush. Think of these youngsters as prototypical juvenile delinquents, 
the colonial era's teenage or teenage-adjacent rebels without a cause. They smoked pipes, drank alcohol, wore weird clothes, and indulged in all sorts of crazy carry-on, ranging from petty offences like insulting behaviour and rock-throwing to more serious crimes such as assault and robbery. Initially, in the mid-1860s, they'd been called the Boy Nuisance. From 1870 onwards, starting in Melbourne, they were dubbed the Larrikans. And much as the Salvation Army's rebranding had led to it getting more newspaper coverage, so this new word larrikin led to endless headlines and debate about the scope of the problem and the necessary severity of the solution. Many commentators advocated giving larrikins the lash, and many young men would be flogged in 1870s and 1880s Victoria for minor offences. I've delved into the rise of the larrikins in my book Hanging Ned Kelly, which is available now, and I've put a link to a discounted edition in your show notes. Just a few weeks before Ned Kelly was hanged, on the 11th of November 1880, Melbourne saw its first recorded case of larrikins harassing the local Salvation Army. The Age reported two such thugs had insulted army members who'd been singing and preaching near Lonsdale Street. When a constable told the larrikins to pipe down, one of them punched out this copper. Both received minor fines. At this time in Melbourne, there were worries about the Salvation Army attracting the wrong crowd, and there were isolated incidents where individuals caused trouble at services. A few months later, in Adelaide, the Express and Telegraph newspaper reported the Salvation Army's open-air meetings had audiences, quote, composed principally of larrikins and unfortunate girls. The newspaper's biggest criticism was that none of these people actually attended the service in the hall afterwards, so there were surely better ways than street marches to reach these people with the gospel. Up in Brisbane in mid-June 1881, such a malcontent did enter a Salvation Army Sunday service and then cleared it by letting off stink bombs. Back in Adelaide at this time, another bloke got three months for busting into a service and threatening to punch out the Salvation Army officers who tried to get him to leave. In passing this pretty harsh sentence, the magistrate said religious gatherings of any description should not be subject to such disturbances. But soon in South Australia, it was the police who were doing the interfering. Having received so many complaints about the Salvation Army's noisy processions, the police commissioner ordered his men to put a stop to them. By now, in Adelaide, the Reverend John Alexander Dowie had attached himself to the Salvation Army. Just briefly, Dowie is historically notable as the forerunner of modern religious hucksters. In the future, he'd turn to faith healing and, in America, use all sorts of cons and scams to amass a huge following and become vastly wealthy while claiming to be the returned Elijah. But this sort of money-making mischief was years off. In July 1881, he was out front of the Salvation Army as they marched down King William Street in Adelaide. The police ordered the procession to stop on the grounds that they were creating a disturbance. The constables took the names of the leaders and the procession was allowed to continue in silence. The Reverend Dowie was summoned to court and protested the police's action, parlaying this press attention into a greater profile for himself. Despite police opposition, the processions continued. Similar police action was soon taken against Captain Thomas Sutherland, who'd arrived from England to lead the Adelaide Salvation Army. 
he was issued with a summons for disturbing the peace and good order of the city. Fined one shilling, Captain Sutherland refused to pay. That meant he'd stay in jail until the next sitting of the court. When he faced the magistrate, the charge was dismissed. Legally, it seemed like a bit of a draw. The police had made their point that they would continue to prosecute the Salvation Army if their processions broke the law. But the army had demonstrated that it was obeying a law higher than that of man's. Over in Melbourne, Mrs Innes was also up against the authorities. In August 1881, Victoria's Secretary of the Lands Department told Mrs Innes that her Salvation Army could no longer meet in Fitzroy Gardens on Sunday mornings. Why? Because the larrikins who showed up were damaging the shrubs and trees. The Ballarat Star commented, quote, No doubt we shall be in the midst of a holy war very soon. Not quite. At least then. Mrs Innes did protest to the government, saying the Salvation Army was being treated unfairly and that the larrikin disturbances were greatly exaggerated. At this time, the Argus newspaper printed a little explainer for readers who'd been asking, what is a Salvation Army? It said that while this style of revivalism was something new and strange in Australia, in England and America, the Salvation Army, quote, occupy a recognised place amongst the follies and crazes of the day. The Salvation Army's mission, the paper said, was to save the sinful by, quote, parading the streets with singing of hymns, shouting and much frantic gesticulation. The Argus related what the Adelaide Army had been up to when Captain Sutherland was summoned to court. Quote, Witnesses for the prosecution stated that all sorts of disorderly characters followed the procession, that the singing resembled a corroboree, and that the noise and uproar frightened the horses in the streets. The Argus said that the Salvation Army wouldn't really be of much interest to Melbourne people, except for the disturbing fact that General Booth was likely to officially send emissaries to the city. Quote, if he should do so, the results are not likely to be pleasant. The scenes which occur from time to time on the wharves on Sunday afternoons in consequence of the well-meaning but injudicious efforts of open-air preachers are bad enough. But what would happen if a Salvation Army were to march through Burke Street on a Sunday night can only be imagined. Within a week or so, Melburnians didn't have to imagine this scenario. Perhaps spurred on by the Argus, the local Salvation Army took to marching through the city on Sunday nights. General Booth's famous instructions had been, quote, Go for souls and go for the worst. In Melbourne, that meant the Salvation Army held their city meetings in Little Burke Street, right opposite where the city's worst characters were concentrated. This was Bilking Square, the red light district. A collection of slum buildings, Bilking Square was so named because sex workers there were supposedly in the habit of stealing from their customers. The district's thoroughfares were the piquantly named Juliet Terrace, where female sex workers offered themselves, and Romeo Lane, where their male counterparts plied their trade. There was also Punch Lane, where indeed you might get a knuckle sandwich or worse as someone stole your wallet. So you can imagine how a marching army of singing, preaching and teetotaling soldiers of the cross were received when they ventured into this seedy district of drunken debauchery. Yet it was this audience of larrikins and larrikinesses that the Salvation Army prized, and it was from the ranks of these fallen that they would claim their greatest successes. 
But with the Salvation Army out loud and proud in the centre of Melbourne now, the city's authorities faced a policing dilemma unlike any other. Were they to act like the Romans who'd persecuted Jesus Christ? In a Christian civilization, shouldn't the Salvation Army be supported because by taking to the streets to spread the word amongst the downfallen, they were doing exactly as Jesus had instructed? Yet no one could deny that the noise the Salvation Army created was a nuisance, that the crowd they attracted disturbed the peace, and that by marching without the permission of the mayor or the city clerk, they were breaking the law. What to do? In early September 1881, Superintendent Winch, who had charge of Melbourne's police, told his sergeants and constables that the Salvation Army's street processions and gatherings had to be stopped. The first to face court was a charity worker named James Swinburne. He pleaded not guilty, and in fact he denied that he was a member of the Salvation Army. The magistrate Mr Panton tried to exercise the wisdom of Solomon. He found that Mr. Swinburne had offended, but discharged him without punishment. The magistrate told Mr. Swinburne that in future, he and other Salvation Army members had to apply to the authorities for permission for their street processions. If they failed to do so, they'd face the consequences. But the Evangelical Association appealed the case to Victoria's Chief Secretary, James Grant. They argued that all Mr. Swinburne had been doing was exercising his freedom of speech, movement and religion. He had not obstructed traffic and he hadn't breached the peace. Thus, he hadn't broken the law, and for the magistrate to find that he had was an outrage. The chief secretary ruled in favour of Mr. Swinburne. He declared the Salvation Army was not banned from the streets and he instructed the police not to interfere with their marches so long as traffic wasn't impeded. Now this was another outrage. The Salvation Army was breaking the law by not getting permission for their processions. No one else would get away with it. So were they above the law? It certainly seemed so, given that their defiance had just been endorsed by the Chief Secretary. The Herald thought this sent a terrible message especially as two prominent Melbourne men had also put their cases against the Salvation Army to the Chief Secretary on the same day. One was Mr McLeod, manager of London Chartered Bank on Bourke Street. He said on a recent Sunday, as he was tending to his desperately sick daughter, the Salvation Army had been right outside his place causing a racket. When he asked them to quieten down, one of their number knocked him into the gutter. Mr. McLeod's daughter had died that very night. The other complainant to the Chief Secretary, Henry Byron Moore, was a really big mover and shaker in Melbourne. The lessee of the new stock exchange and newly appointed secretary of the Victoria Racing Club, he'd also recently been responsible for bringing the marvels of the modern age to the city. His Melbourne telephone exchange company had started operations in August 1880. Less than a year later, his Victorian Electric Light Company had lit up the Eastern Market. But in September 1881, Mr Moore was nursing his sick brother, Alfred, at the latter's place in the city. His sibling's sickness and delirium wasn't helped by the Salvation Army causing a cacophony beneath his windows. 
When grieving Mr McLeod made his representation to the Chief Secretary, he said there wasn't a neighbour of his on Bourke Street who wouldn't sign a petition against the horrible street processions of the Salvation Army. But his comrade in outrage, Mr Moore, went further. He said that from now on, he'd keep a red-hot poker next to his brother's sickbed and he wouldn't answer to anyone for using it on the Salvationists. The Salvation Army wrote to The Age to say that Mr McLeod had actually attacked one of their members on Bourke Street without first saying why he was so angry. They claimed they'd moved on immediately as soon as they learned that the man's daughter was dying. As for Mr Moore's weapon of choice, the image delighted Melbourne newspapers. Punch printed a cartoon of him jabbing his red-hot poker into the bum of a fleeing soldier of the cross. Despite the complaints of these gentlemen getting a lot of press, the Salvation Army had won this round. The police were not to interfere with them, and so they redoubled their efforts to save souls in the streets. The crowds got bigger and the noise got louder. A Weekly Times columnist said, quote, The Salvation Army is carrying on some pretty high jinks, and unless the officers alter their mode of warfare, some of them will come to grief. With the law not being used against the Salvation Army, the Larrikans would feel justified in taking the law into their own hands. The persecution started small, but because it too wasn't strongly put down by the law, it soon grew more serious. On the 3rd of October 1881, when the Salvation Army faithful were gathered in a vacant lot in Paran, a larrikin in their midst cut into a lead gas pipe and lit a match. There was an unholy flame, like hellfire rising up from the bowels of the earth, but no one was hurt. A month later, also in Paran, 200 larrikins and larrikinesses rushed to Salvation Army open-air service to create what the Argus called a disgraceful disturbance. The ringleader was caught by a plainclothes sergeant who'd been in the crowd. But this provocateur was let off with a one-pound fine, though the magistrate said they'd throw the book at any future offenders. A few nights later, a similarly large crowd of larrikins dogged a Salvation Army crowd in the centre of Melbourne. The Argus reported the thugs were, quote, blowing trumpets, ringing bells, yelling, whistling, and making a variety of other objectionable noises, the whole scene was one of uproar and confusion and was, to use a mild term, a disgrace to any civilised community. A month later, on Bourke Street, larrikins attacked a Salvation Army march with handfuls of pepper. One bystander caught pepper in the eyes and was temporarily blinded. But only one man was arrested to face court. The magistrate, Mr. Call, said he felt inclined to be lenient and he fined this fellow just three pounds. In this case, the law and the newspapers sent a very mixed message. The magistrate said that throwing pepper was diabolical and the offender should have resorted to some other means of suppression. This, of course, supposed that this man had any right to suppress the Salvation Army. The Herald thought that peppering an obnoxious person was cruel and dastardly. Mr Moore's red-hot poker, it said, was, quote, a manly sort of weapon. Meanwhile, quote, a fair hit out from the shoulder is excusable sometimes. So the Herald wasn't ruling out violence entirely. And it also went in for victim blaming, saying of the Salvation Army, quote, 
it may be very foolish of their leaders to march these musical enthusiasts down a crowded thoroughfare, and if they come to some sort of grief, they have only themselves to blame. Any literate larrikin or larrikiness reading such reports might have reasonably thought that the law and the papers was giving him or her cover for getting in on the anti-salvationist action. On New Year's Day 1882, such a mob let fly at the Salvation Army in Melbourne with both insults and a shower of rotten eggs. The thugs split when the police showed up and made no arrests leaving the Salvation Army to soldier on in their stinking clothes. Such scenes were common in the city and suburbs after that. In April 1882, The Age reported of a vile attack in Richmond. Quote, One of the band, having received a particularly large and decayed tomato in the eye, after carefully wiping away the mess, loudly cried that he was ready to suffer martyrdom. And just as he had given vent to this utterance, a dead rat was thrown at him, striking him in the face, while a small boy dashed under his legs and set fire to a quantity of crackers and squibs. The mob then commenced to jostle the army, and to do this, several sham fights were improvised by the larrikins. The army was knocked down several times, but were no sooner on their legs again than they renewed their exhortations. The whole scene was a disgrace to a civilised community. Blasphemous utterances and disgustingly filthy language filled the air. At least a commentator in the Herald was a little more sympathetic to the Salvation Army this time. Quote, These good people, in my opinion, do more harm than good. Still, they are sincere and earnest, and should be protected from the attacks and filthy blasphemies of the greasy loafers. The police are surely to be blamed in permitting the continuance of these disgraceful scenes. In early August, the police did take action, arresting a couple of thugs who were charged with assaulting a Salvation Army officer and also laying into a good Samaritan who'd come to the man's assistance. The men's defence in court was that the Salvo's street preaching was an invitation to such violence. They were each fined just 10 shillings, which was what you might pay for a minor drunkenness offence. Six weeks later, on the 21st of September, Melbourne finally welcomed its appointed Salvation Army leaders from England. They were James and Alice Barker. They'd only recently been married by General Booth, who'd promoted them to major and commissioned them to take command, quote, in all the colonies of the Southern Seas. They were to sail to Australia on the ship Cotopaxi. The ship's handwritten passenger records, which I found at Ancestry.com.au, list James as 29 and Alice as 24. Their occupations weren't recorded. They were just two of 250 people aboard. Cotopaxi steamed from London on the 12th of August, 1881. James and Alice Barker had intended to take command of the Salvation Army in Adelaide, but as Providence would have it, there was a wharf dispute there. So, with just a few shillings in their pockets, they disembarked in Melbourne, where they didn't know anyone. The Barkers were met by members of the Salvation Army, and impressed by what they saw, they decided to stay. James and Alice worked fast, though typically in the press, he was given most of the credit. In early November 1882, Major Barker officially launched the Salvation Army in the colony at a meeting at West Melbourne's Baptist Church. Within two months, he'd set up a Salvation Army Corps in Hotham, which was what North Melbourne used to be called, and he'd set up another one in Collingwood. 
but during this period, larrikin attacks were increasing in frequency and in severity. A Salvation Army gathering in Flemington was watched by thugs who were hiding in nearby Royal Park. When the faithful were dispersing, the larrikins rushed in and attacked, pummeling men and women with stones. One of these bullies beat a Salvationist badly, and the attacker remained at his brutal work long enough that he could be clearly identified by eight members of the army. When the larrikin faced court, the magistrate convicted him of a cruel and unwarrantable assault, and then set him free with just a 10 shilling fine and two pounds in costs. Around this time, a man rode his horse into a congregation gathered outside the Salvation Army's Little Burke Street Chapel. When they took refuge inside, the man tried to ride the horse in after them. He was fined two pounds. Meanwhile, a Collingwood bloke belted a passing army member with a beer bottle, leaving the man with a serious gash on his arm. The attacker was fined a fiver. I think it's safe to assume that these assaults represented the tip of the iceberg, and that other attacks and abuses didn't make the papers or the courts. Despite the larrikins being on the warpath, James and Alice Barker were rapidly expanding the Salvation Army in Melbourne and starting to turn around public perceptions. They'd linked up with Dr John Singleton, Melbourne's leading philanthropist. So, in addition to their own temperance hall in Hotham, they were able to use his mission hall in Collingwood. Additionally, the Salvation Army was looking to build its first brick barracks, which would provide accommodation and safety for hundreds of members. Major Barker had also overseen production of a local version of the War Cry newspaper, sold on streets by his soldiers. In late January 1883, a Herald writer attended some Salvation Army services, and he was mightily impressed with Mr. and Mrs. Barker's conviction and belief. He also reported Major Barker's determination to defend his congregation, quoting the leader thus, If anybody makes a disturbance, I don't make any mistake as to who it is. I pitch on the right person, and out he goes. But even as the Salvation Army grew in visibility, strength, respectability and determination, the new Victorian Chief Secretary withdrew his consent for street processions. Melbourne's police would again be called on to stop them. In early April 1883, William Shepherd was summoned to court for marching in the street. This was actually good publicity for the good works of the Salvation Army because it shone a light on how they'd helped this man turn his life around. As he told the Herald, quote, You can say that from an early age, my life has been one of rebellion against God and man. My intentions now are to live for God's glory. William Shepherd was at the forefront of one of the Salvation Army's most celebrated charitable initiatives. From March 1883, Major Barker had been going to Melbourne Jail with Dr Singleton to visit prisoners. But their ministry didn't end behind bars. They set up a program to assist men and women upon their release from jail to help them find work, food and lodgings. This prison gate brigade was a world first. As William Shepherd told the Herald, just last Friday he'd been at the jail at the request of a criminal chum whose soul was in need of saving. Facilitating such salvation was now his calling, Mr Shepherd saying, quote, I intend to sow the seeds of life amongst the larrikins and make them as happy as myself. Major Barker and other leading Salvation Army officers were in court to support William Shepherd. 
but this time it did no good. Mr Shepherd was convicted and received the maximum penalty, a £5 fine with £5 in costs. He'd just been punished far more heavily than any of the larrikins who'd used actual violence over the past year. The magistrate had laid down the law, which the Salvation Army decided to ignore. They continued their street marches, reports claiming they were now twice as loud. On the 12th of April, 1883, the Herald said the situation was serious. If ordinary citizens behaved in this manner, the police would throw them in the watchhouse. Authorities had tried to be reasonable, but now the Salvation Army was asking to be punished. Quote, there can therefore be no reason to raise a false cry of persecution or interference with religious liberty. The Herald also pointed out that in England, the Salvation Army's excesses had led to the rise of an organised band of thugs. They called themselves the Skeleton Army. These brutes had been so effective that General Booth himself had supposedly ordered the Salvation Army to stop at street marches so they wouldn't be attacked. The Herald said it mentioned this development because they believed it relevant to the Salvation Army's recent conduct on Melbourne streets. This really read like a veiled threat, and indeed it may have read to local larrikins like a call to organised action. There were other articles about the Skeleton Army at this time. The Sydney Morning Herald said them causing the Salvation Army to stop processions in England was a step in the right direction. Quote, The peaceful streets of London will not be disturbed every Sunday by General Booth's big drama and the so-called singing of the Shrieking Sisterhood. The Ballarat Courier reported the Skeleton Army's aims in England were supposedly ideological, that it intended to parade, quote, till all religious processions are impartially put down by law. But there was also a commercial side. Quote, it is alleged that the Skeleton Army has its funds from and is in part encouraged by the lower class of publicans. The most serious fact, perhaps, is that this is the first attempt to organise the roughs of the metropolis into one body. It needs scarcely be said that, whatever the motive in this instance, such an organisation might become a tremendous social evil. Of course, larrikins in Victoria, and elsewhere in Australia, had by then already been harassing the Salvation Army for several years. But now they had a name to put on a banner, and a skull and bones death head symbol to strike fear into their enemies. The Ballarat Courier's editor in May 1883 received Skeleton Army medals announcing their presence in the town. He said he hoped local lads wouldn't join an extremist organisation like the one in England. But this wasn't just because he was opposed to violence and harassment. The editorial pointed out that even mild Skeleton Army antics might result in greater prominence and sympathy for the Salvation Army. For the Ballarat Courier's editor, this was not a desirable result. While he was opposed to the Salvation Army, the rise of a Skeleton Army might see things get out of control. Quote, A farce on a farce is an utter absurdity, and as extremes meet, it is not impossible that the two farces might produce a tragedy. Victorian larrikins were quick to claim membership in the Skeleton Army. On Sunday the 22nd of July 1883, 300 of them descended on Hotham, 
assembling outside the Salvation Army's Temperance Hall in Queensbury Street. This mob tried to force their way inside, but an army captain locked the doors and sent word for the police. Constables arrived and prevented the skeletons from getting inside. Instead, they marched around and sang filthy songs. They also bombarded the police, the hall, and anyone leaving the building with flower bombs, until that part of the street was so white it looked like it had been snowing. A month later, there was an even bigger confrontation in Richmond. Marching along the street, the Salvation Army was bombarded with rotten eggs, and this time the skeletons succeeded in breaching the church. The Mount Alexander Mail said a disgraceful scene ensued. Quote, Over a thousand warriors of either side were in the building, and the noise resembled pandemonium while a number of windows were broken. This newspaper blamed the victims, saying, quote, The Salvation Army carelessly omitted to acquaint the police with their intention to parade, and hence the disturbance. Next, there was another battle in Hotham, with the Herald reporting 330 larrikins had virtually taken control of the whole town for two hours, even attacking vehicles passing through. Quote, They besieged a hall where the Salvation Army was holding service. They insulted and maltreated passengers and pelted the policemen with flower bags. Such violence wasn't restricted to Hotham. Quote, a similar scene took place at St Kilda on the same afternoon when there was a series of brutal assaults. There were further attacks at this time in Brunswick. In each case, where culprits were actually caught, they paid fines to stay out of jail. That was despite these violent crimes being premeditated, planned, and not in response to provocation. In some places, the skeletons enjoyed some level of business and official support. While funding from hotel, brewery, and brothel owners was widely rumoured, at this time in Footscray Council, an alderman suggested that the mayor should call a public meeting to form a local branch of the Skeleton Army. This on-the-record request was rebuffed, but fellow councillors agreed that the police should suppress the salvos as a way of keeping the peace. In Hotham, the skeleton attacks continued into January 1884. Salvation Army members were daily pelted with eggs and mud, while the hall and barracks were nightly subjected to rains of metal and stones. People feared for their lives, and the Hotham Council wanted the police to protect the Salvationists from the skeletons. Things were as bad or even worse in Bendigo. In mid-January 1884, the Bendigo Independent recorded a week's worth of battles. One headline simply read, Salvation Army versus Skeleton Army. As many as 50 skeletons would attack Salvationist processions. They'd pelt them with missiles and beat them with fists. Bendigo's male captain and a female lieutenant were described as having sustained serious injuries that required medical treatment. Such assaults on women were considered particularly dastardly. The Bendigo Independent reported, quote, one of the Hallelujah lasses was brutally and cowardly assaulted by one of the larrikin element, who threatened to knock the salvation out of her, and, suiting the action to the word, gave her a violent blow in the face, which knocked her down. On regaining her feet, she was again brutally ill-used by the ruffian. Salvationist men copped it too. Quote, Several personal attacks were also made upon individual members, the most serious being committed on a young man named Drew, 
who was rendered almost insensible from the effects of a wound on the head and a kick in the chest. So where were the police? The answer was nowhere. In Bendigo, as in Hotham, the Salvation Army petitioned for police protection. But this was considered pretty rich, given the army had so recently and so openly defied the law, prohibiting their street marches. Yet, as the Ballarat Courier had predicted, every time the Skeleton Army attacked, sympathy grew for the Salvation Army. In early February, the North Melbourne Advertiser reported that the usual open-air salvos meeting on a vacant piece of land had yet again seen a rampage by the larrikins. Some of these attackers were as young as 10. The conduct was so bad, the writer said, it made you wonder, quote, what will the rising generation be like if these be a specimen? If the behaviour of the larrikins last Monday be the type of young Australia, the future prospects are indeed black. And again, there hadn't been a constable present to stop the filthy language, the stone-throwing, jostling of ordinary people, and even the harassment of an old lady. The North Melbourne Advertiser, which compared the molestation of the Salvation Army to the persecution of Jesus, demanded that they be protected by the police. If the Salvationists should breach the peace, then by all means the police should deal with them but society couldn't leave it to the skeleton army to deal out their sickening version of justice. Larrikin forces formed up beneath the skull and crossbones in many Australian towns and cities during this period. Up in Newcastle in New South Wales, where two publicans were said to be behind the skeleton army, a mob of 2,000 harassed and attacked a Salvation Army march. This free-for-all, described as a riot, saw one skeleton there get five weeks in prison. In Parramatta, a skeleton attack resulted in a Salvationist cadet being kicked almost to death. In Liverpool, a hall was repeatedly subjected to skeletons setting animals loose in the congregation. First, a possum, then a koala, and finally a rat. But that was just for fun. The skeletons would also bust their way into Liverpool services to beat up people. In April 1884 in Marlborough in Victoria, a most determined larrikin assault was made on a lieutenant known as Happy George. He tried to remove a thug from the hall when a dozen men attacked him with brickbats and heavy stones, leaving Happy George battered and bruised. Each of these cowardly outrages turned society against the skeletons and towards the Salvationists. A letter writer to the Kitan Observer newspaper in Victoria on the 15th of July 1884 claimed to have watched these larrikins in action and said they were, quote, lower than the smallest worm in the eyes of all right-minded subjects. I hope the day is not far distant when the satanic skeleton army will be dissolved and the salvationists reign supreme. Two weeks later, in Melbourne, a Herald reporter attended a huge Salvation Army gathering that filled the city's town hall. One of the speakers was Lieutenant George Kidd, a former Skeleton Army leader who'd faced off with Major Barker back on the Collingwood Flat. By now, this sort of conversion was a familiar story. Salvation Army leaders used it in speeches, saying one of the fastest routes to becoming a Salvationist was to first become a skeleton. In its reporting of this town hall meeting, the Herald said the Salvation Army was now entirely respectable in Melbourne. Amusingly, 
Given what this newspaper had printed about them over the years, it took some of the credit for their success, saying it had been the first to support the movement. Even with their ascendancy and their growing numbers, at the town hall, the Salvation Army was taking care to protect its own. The Herald reporter was impressed by the quote, dexterity with which the chuckers out performed their officers. Whenever there was a disturbance, three or four of these red-shirted officers were on the culprit and out he went. But nothing much marred the meeting, the Herald concluding, quote, Altogether, the affair was the greatest popular success yet achieved by the army. At the end of August 1884, the foundation stone was laid for a 900-bed barracks in Brunswick. This was the fourth such building to be erected by the army in the two years since the Barkers had arrived in Melbourne. As further evidence of how far the Salvation Army had come in acceptance, the stone was laid by three-time former Victorian Premier and present Chief Secretary Graham Berry. He told the crowd that all right-thinking men and women supported the Salvation Army and all of its good works. Yet the Skeleton Army hadn't been laid to rest, and they were still set on intimidation, threats and violence. Though no one was physically injured, one of the worst instances of abuse came on Guy Fawkes Night at Clare in South Australia. Hostility to the Salvos was such that a couple of shopkeepers in this town saw an opportunity to make a quid by selling a consignment of eggs that had gone bad. They displayed them in the window as Salvation Army eggs, price three pennies a dozen, and they were snapped up by skeletons who had the endorsement of the town's mayor. Salvation Army members wore coats and cloaks to protect them against the shower of rotten eggs. The soldiers shrugged off these garments into tubs of water outside their chapel before going into service. The skeletons that night mounted a massive procession through the town, complete with banners, blazing torches and an effigy of the local Salvation Army captain, which they hanged and set ablaze. The jeering crowd gathered around the Salvation Army's hall, and the mob sent up roaring cheers for the Skeleton Army, the local publicans, the mayor and even for the devil himself. The Clare outrage was reported all over Australia. Sixty years later, a resident would write in the Clare Argus newspaper, quote, In my boyhood, I heard talk of the persecution to which the army had been subjected, but all the references were expressions of regret and shame that anything so discreditable had been perpetrated against the good name of the town by a small handful of misguided people. Yet newspaper reports from the time said this was anything but a small number of locals. The same week as the Clare outrage at Victoria Park in Collingwood, Major Barker held a grand review of Melbourne's Salvation Army. Some 1,400 members marched or helped organise this event, which was watched by another 7,500 supporters. The Kitan Observer newspaper said, quote, no one who saw the assemblage could doubt that the movement has taken a great hold of the working classes. The Skeleton Army didn't dare to put in an appearance there. But the Larrikans were still a menace in Melbourne. Elijah Upjohn, who'd become Melbourne's hangman in mid-1880 and who made his gallows debut with Ned Kelly five months later, knew this as well as anyone. During his career as Victoria's finisher of the law, he'd been the target for sporadic violence. 
but once he was dismissed from his hangman position in late 1884 and turned loose on the streets, he was hounded and hunted by the larrikins. On Sunday the 23rd of November 1884, Upjohn was one of the penitents who presented himself to the Salvation Army at the Temperance Hall. Several senior members objected, but Major Barker overruled them. He said that all were welcome, even a broken-down ex-executioner. Upjohn's recruitment was the subject of much mirth in the newspapers and magazines all around Australia. For a little while there, in early 1885, the old hangman hovered around the Salvation Army officers during the day for safety. But at night, he had to hide in outhouses to keep clear of the larrikins. Even so, it wasn't enough. In mid-1885, Elijah Upjohn had to leave Melbourne for Sydney to avoid being murdered by his larrikin persecutors. By this time, the skeleton army no longer made the newspapers very often but they were still a presence to be reckoned with in Richmond. On the 21st of October 1885, the skeletons decided to have another go at the salvos as they marched through the suburb. The Mount Alexander Mail reported, quote, Whilst the contingent was proceeding along Margaret Street, surrounded with the larrikin element in strong force, the neighbouring houses were subjected in one incessant volley of stones and mud, and the language used was something disgusting. The conduct of the mob at this stage was such that the army had to turn around and defend itself. But here was how things had changed. The Salvation Army wasn't only willing to stand their ground and defend themselves, they'd also informed the police of their intention to march, suspecting they'd come under attack from the skeleton army. The Richmond sergeant had cooperated, advising the Salvationists on the route they should take and saying he'd have plainclothes men lying in ambush should there be any trouble. After the salvos turned around to face the skeletons, the Mount Alexander Mail continued, quote, Almost simultaneously, the police appeared on the scene, with the result that a severe struggle ensued, lasting for upwards of 20 minutes. According to the police, some of the army members fought bravely to overcome their assailants, and the police themselves had to use an amount of force to quell the disturbance. In other words, the skeletons had their bony butts handed to them. Previously, individual skeletons had been charged and received small fines, but this time five ringleaders were brought before the court. They offered no defence. There was nothing left to say. The police had been informed of the procession and they'd witnessed these cowardly assaults. This time the skeletons received no leniency from the bench, the magistrate saying he was determined to, quote, stop this shameful conduct. All five skeletons received fines beyond their ability to pay and they were sentenced to six to eight weeks in jail. The skeleton army had eventually marched themselves right into a trap laid by the Salvation Army. Whether it was the severity of these punishments and or simply the numbers and respectability the Salvationists had achieved, the Skeleton Army was finally buried in Victoria. They'd soon be done and dusted in other colonies too. After that, the Skeleton Army would be largely forgotten, except by members of the Salvation Army recalling the early days of their holy war in Australia. Despite the often ferocious nature of the skeletons' attacks on the salvos, I didn't find any confirmed record of fatalities. 
That said, there may have been one such death, and it occurred when the skeletons were at their most vicious. In February 1884, a woman who was reported to be a Salvation Army member was found dead in a waterhole in Brunswick. She'd last been seen alive when following a procession. This woman had been strangled and had been beaten. Had she been murdered? Or was it somehow a suicide? The story became even more puzzling when the victim was identified as an English aristocrat who'd fallen so far from grace that she'd become infamous around Australia as an alcoholic. I'll be exploring this mysterious case in the next episode called I Have Drunk the Universe, The Life and Times of the Notorious Lady Munro. Lady Munro really was an incredible person, and I'm utterly amazed she's been so completely forgotten, particularly by a country so fond of celebrating eccentric, colourful characters, fond of a drink or 20. Believe me when I say the next episode will defy all of your expectations. You'll be able to hear Lady Munro's fascinating, stranger-than-fiction story very soon, but even sooner if you're an Apple subscriber or Patreon supporter, because the episode will be available to you early and ad-free ahead of its general release. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy the bonus episode, Gotcha! Australia's April Fools. I'm Michael Adams, and this has been Forgotten Australia. As always, thanks for listening, and thanks for your support. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.